Daniel has <laughs> This is uh <laughs> Oh, he's going to be fun. Um it's uh, this is Daniel's uh time to kind of get set. And so when he met with the with the praise band just a couple of days ago, he said, "You know, I'm just going to do a week or two just trying to get set, let people get to know me, get to know us cuz it's all new." I mean, He's been in other churches, but things are always different. And so um, um, I, I thank Daniel, but I also thank the, the praise team and the tech team, which is always kind of the wallflowers here. You know, we don't see much of them, um, but they've just been doing just a great, a great job for us these past few months and, um, and want to thank them as well. This is, uh, I don't know about you, but this has been a fun series for me in, in Revelation. I know I did it five years ago. I'm doing a whole lot more studying, different studying, focusing on, on different pieces of it, but it still comes down to, to the main thing, and that's the, the whole title of this series is Dear Church, Everything's Going to Be Okay. That is a message of hope, of hope that God gives us throughout His Word, and especially, especially in the book of Revelation that some people think is the most fearful. How can it be fearful when it's called Revelation? And the one revelation is the revelation of a Savior named Jesus. Now that is hopeful, amen? That's what these people needed who this was written to originally. And I don't know about you, but I need that too. Every day I need to hear these words of hope because life is tough. Life is tough. I may may not seem like it when we're trying to compare it to what's going on here back in their day in in Revelation or even across the world in other parts of the nation, but it's still difficult even at the, the persecution that we as Christians face in this country. But two very important things to be reminded about the book of Revelation, I say every week, it's meant, it's a book meant to be understood and it's meant to be useful. The people needed to have hope. Now, a lot of what we read about in the book of Revelation, a lot of people don't like to read the book of Revelation because you read it and you go, wow, this doesn't make any sense. It does to them. It does, they spoke that language. They understood symbols. They understood numbers. And so our goal here, my goal here, is to help us gain a little better understanding of how they heard it. So read it through their eyes. And our approach in this series is not to go chronologically through it because it's not written that way. I think Mike Newman in his book on Revelation calls it like a spiral staircase. And you keep looking down, you, you keep seeing it's, it's circular, and that's really what it is. In the first few chapters, you have the seven letters written to seven different churches, some of them seaport churches, some of them major commerce, commerce churches on, on main roads of transportation and so forth. But the seven main churches is, is who this is written to. So that's how we're covering it. We're looking at each of the letters written to each of the churches because Jesus defines them each of having a very particular issue they're dealing with or struggling with. In addition to that, we're looking at key concepts um, in the book that also are related to uh, what these people are experiencing. So far, we've talked about the Antichrist. We've talked about the two witnesses. We've talked about the last days, the dragon, the beast, the number 666. You can go back in the messages and and hear about them. If you ever want to talk about it too, you can contact me and we can set up some time to talk about it. Most important to understand is that what God is describing in the book of Revelation is a spiritual battle that most of us really don't want to see because it's pretty ugly. 
It's pretty, it can be frightening. But when we have God on our side, we're okay. And that's his message to these people who are seeing that curtain pulled back. They are seeing evil personified uh, right, right in front of them. Well, today we're looking at the letter to the church in the city of Thyatira. And the key concept we're going to talk about today is the concept of judgment. Judgment and justice, all right? Now, to get started, there's a verse, though, I'd like you all to memorize this morning. Are you okay with memory work? Everybody here really got good memories? Okay, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm not going to have a whole verse. It's just going to be part of a verse. It's from 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. It's only three words. How are you doing in memorizing three words? They actually make a sentence, too. The three words are, God is just. Say it with me if you memorized it. God is just. One more time to make sure. God is just. All right. That's, that's a key phrase for today's message. Now, what does that mean to be just? Well, in very simple terms, it means to be fair. And that's what we're going to be talking about. If, if, if you're just, it means you can be trusted to do the right thing. But something I want you to note about this verse, though. It does not say God does just things. It does not say that. He does. But that's not what it says. It says God is just. Big difference. Big difference between the two. You see, if, if, God, if God simply performed just actions, at any time, for whatever reason, he could say, well, you know, I'm God. I can do whatever I want. And today, I don't feel like being too just. Right? If he does just things, that means sometimes he may not do just things. But that's why it doesn't say that. That's not what it says. It just says God is is just. And with God being just, that means it's reference to his character. God performs just actions not because he chooses to do so, but because he can't not do so for the double negative, right? It's his nature to do so. It's, you can't act counter to your nature. Not even God can. He can't go against who he is. He is just. It's how he's wired. God is just. God is just. Now, I want to share something with you. Uh, I've shared this before. It's called the way of the master. It's an evangelism technique I personally experienced as a young man when I was in Southern California on the Santa Monica Pier. How many of you are there with me right now? Where there is about 60 degree weather, there's no humidity, no rain. Anyway, and my brother and I were out there, and we were watching these guys um, that were, were gathering people around, and we were wondering what got their attention. It was a $20 bill that one of the guys was holding up. He says, who wants this $20 bill? Well, pfft, all kinds of people want the $20 bill. And he says, he picks out one person and says, okay, you want the $20 bill? Then I have some questions. Are you ready to answer these questions? The guy says, yeah. He says, okay, first question, are you a good person? Well, that stumped him. <laughs> He said, well, I'm, I, I think I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Okay, okay. Well, let me just ask a few questions to make sure you're a pretty good person, okay? Have you ever told a lie? Let's all pretend we're on the Santa Monica Pier and you were asked that question. Raise your hand if you would answer yes. Have you ever told a lie? Okay. I can tell you know exactly how many just lied. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Have you ever told a lie? He says, okay. So you've told a lie. Okay. We all have. That makes you a... Liar, okay. Um, all right, have you ever stolen anything? Raise your hand if you've ever stolen anything. Come on now. Okay, let me broaden it a bit. Have you ever borrowed something and not given it back? 
All right, see, that makes you a thief. All right, all right. Have you ever lusted? Let, don't raise your hand on this one. Just, um, just don't. This, this can get really complicated. Um, so I went, well, this guy raised his hand, okay? He says, okay, so what we have here, of course, uh, we, we have a, a lying, thieving adulterer standing in our presence. He says, okay, now that we know you're a liar, you're a thief, and you're an adulterer, um, one of these days you're going to die, and you're going to stand before God himself in his courtroom. How do you think God is going to judge you, innocent or guilty? Yeah, guilty. If God is just God... He is going to call you guilty. Well, then what they do is they go, but here's the deal. Jesus is going to come and stand between you and the judging father, and he is going to say, I died for you, Judd. I died for him. My works, my sinless life, that's what he gets from me. It's my righteousness. Now, Father, judge Judd through me. And the declaration isn't guilty, it's not guilty. Is God a just God? Yes, God is just. God is just. Very, very clear. Now, just as God is just, <laughs> he's also a God of love. He's a God of grace. And these are the kind of characteristics or aspects of God's nature that come through in this letter to this church that we're looking at today. So I want you to open up your Bibles, your phone, or whatever. We're going to walk through some of these verses. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. It begins, as they all begin, all seven letters, to the angel. And the angel, of course, is the pastor. <laughs> No, it's a messenger, but it is the pastor, because then the pastor reads this to the church. These are the words of the Son of God. Just to pause here. The Son of God. Only time that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Otherwise, it's Son of Man. In fact, throughout the Bible. But he calls himself the Son of God. Very, very important here, because he wants these people to know he's talking to them personally. This is God talking to you. You have my attention. Did they need to hear that? Yeah. They were getting killed. They were suffering horribly because of their faith. And now Jesus is talking to them, and Jesus is God. It goes on to say, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, before you close your mind to this, this is actually very simple. The, the, the whole sim symbolic picture of Jesus having blazing eyes, it's talking about the penetrating inside of Jesus Christ. It means he can see everything. He can see in your heart. No, we can cloak it from others, but he sees motivation. How many of you does that scare just a little? All right? But it's the reality. He can see it all. Now, some of us, we get scared at times, but other times we say, I'm glad you do because you still love me. Whoa, that's very comforting. And that's how Jesus wants them to see it because I'm just, and I know you have my righteousness, my rightness, I see you as perfect. I see you as holy. That's what he's saying to them. He goes on to say here, whose feet are like burnished bronze. And what that's a reference to is the fact that, that as, as, as bronze is refined, it gets stronger. And Jesus is saying, I am standing on the basis of justice, of rightness, of grace, of truth, of mercy. This is what Jesus is saying about himself. Now, I want to go back just a moment 
to the insight that he has. Because when we were at our staff devotion, Kelly, you said this, and I thought it was really cool. You said, well, I kind of use that with the teachers at the school, at our school. I say, okay, here's what I want you to do. As you teach today, I want you to think about how would you be treating the kids, telling them about Jesus, teaching them about life, disciplining as needed, if you knew the parents were right there watching you? Would you do anything differently? Okay? Okay, now, let's say the parents aren't there, but God is, and God's watching you and sees everything. And by the way, he does. I thought that was a great example because it drives home that reality that God is present all the time. He goes on to say this to the church. I love this. He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and your perseverance. These people are good. I mean, they are really, really good. They're being faithful. They're loving. They're persevering. But then he says in verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, the eating of food sacrificed to idols is not a sin. But in 1 Corinthians 8, the sin becomes if your brother is weak in their faith and they're going to stumble or fall because they think it's a sin, don't do it. All right, and, and, and Jezebel is leading them to do all of these things that may cause people to fall from the faith. And then he closes this out at verse 21. I have given her time, Jezebel, to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Let's talk about Jezebel. I'm pretty certain that's not the name of the woman in, his con in that congregation because I don't think anybody in the first century would name uh, anybody Jezebel, um, especially after reading 1 Kings. First Kings and knowing about King Ahab's wife Jezebel, she was a very evil woman. And so it's probably a symbolic reference to the evilness of that wife in First Kings. She is not only evil, but she's inside the church. That's the point. This isn't evil coming in from the outside. This is evil on the inside. Somebody is there trying to divide, trying to tear them up. And, and, and she's misleading them into sin. Now, the real issue isn't what she, what Jezebel is doing, but that the church was allowing it to happen. They were allowing it to happen. You know, it's 1 Corinthians 5.12. Is that right, Pastor? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 5.12, it says, who are we to judge those outside the church? Meaning, who are we to judge those who don't believe in Jesus Christ and say they better start acting like they do? <laughs> That's not what we are to do. We are to judge those inside. Did you know that? We're actually called to judge. We are called to judge the life of those people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. If you're not living like you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we are to hold each other accountable and to allow people to hold us accountable. That, that, is, that is what Jesus is telling them today, and the people are not doing that. They're not calling anybody out. They're letting sin to continue in the church and they aren't holding people accountable, and God is ticked. That's what's happening. God is really upset. Now, let's talk about this city, this city of, of, of Thyatira. Um, it's a major center of trade. Like I said, it's not a seaport city, but it's on a major transportation route. Lots of people coming in, going out, very wealthy, becoming a wealthy city if they aren't already. But they have very powerful trade unions and guilds in this city. 
And, you know, much like the, the unions today, there are certain professions you really can't even have a job in if you're not part of a union. Am I right? And that, that's, that's still kind of true. Um, and and, and the, the problem is, is that if you don't work with the union then, um, you can't even get a lot of jobs in these days. You couldn't, you couldn't even work. You couldn't uh, uh, make a practice or have a living or being able to provide for the family. The problem was these guilds weren't only powerful, but they were pretty ungodly. They were practicing ungodly things. Sexual immorality primarily is, is what they were practicing. And if you were a member of the guild, you were expected to participate in those godless sinful practices. So the question then is, if you're a Christian at the time, what do you do? What do you do? You got to make a choice. If you don't participate in the guild and refuse to participate in the sinful practices, you lose your job. You can't provide for the family. If you participate, you're dishonoring Jesus Christ. Pretty black and white. What do you do? Maybe some of you have faced that before. Maybe that's where your job is right now. And the last thing you want to do is uh, lose friends, get judged by others. You see, apparently, this Jezebel in the church was really good at rationalizing why things God says not to do are apparently okay to do. That's what's happening in a lot of our Christian churches around our nation today and around the world. So people are following this woman's lead rather than God's lead. And as good as they seem to be, they're not keeping God in the lead in their lives. So here's a question. Based on what they're experiencing, is it fair for God to judge them? Is it fair for God to judge them based on what they're experiencing? Now, what are those three words that we're using to describe the character of God? What are they? God is just. So is it fair? Is it just for him to judge them? Of course it is. It must be. And here's why. There's a reason why God is calling this woman Jezebel. This is not a situation where the right thing to do is unclear. It's, it's very, very black and white. They're just not doing it because they've either rationalized why they can do it or they're pretending it's okay uh, to do it or they're just so afraid of losing out. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my status. I'm going to lose my friend. I'm, I'm going to be an outcast. And, and so they're rationalizing all kinds, making up all kinds of reasons why they need to do some of these sinful acts. I've been there when, when I was in the business world before I became a pastor. And uh, I look back at that and I, and I wonder sometimes, say, God, how, how could you still love me? You know? Because the world in itself rationalizes everything. If you've been watching any, any of the news lately, my goodness, there, there are so many false accounts out there about what is true and what is not. The world seems to have gone upside down and downside up and all that. And, and you hear it from two very polarized, different, different sides of the issue, kind of like what we see happening in this church right here. But with God, it's pretty black and white. But here's what I think is so interesting. He's not rushing into judgment. He's not just saying, that's it, it's all over. He's even giving this Jezebel time to repent. 
all right? In, in, in 2 Peter 3, 9, though, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that God tells us. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's not rushing into judgment. He's given him time. He gives us time. Why does he do that? Well, I believe God is so patient with his judgment of us because it's ugly. The judgment that is described in the Bible, when we're very honest about it, it's scary. I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 14 for a moment. We're going to look at a little piece of chapter 14 and then also at chapter 15 in Revelation. In Revelation 14, the judgment that's talked about there by God is the ultimate judgment. It's the judgment, it's the result of that judgment of God. When God says enough is enough. Every person who's ever lived is going to end up in one place, heaven or hell. That's what God makes clear. Revelation 14 teaches us about hell. What's it like? Well, it's a place you don't want to go to. <laughs> what makes it so bad? Well, it's filled with fire. It's filled with flames. And I'm absolutely certain it's filled with scorpions. It's what's described in verse 10 of chapter 14 is this. He will drink of the wine of God's fury. He will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So, so picture a cup filled with the wrath of God that someone is being forced to drink. It, hell, how I understand it, is a complete absence of the love and the grace of God. And that's why there are symbols for hell, like sulfur and, and, and smoke and, and, and torment, but nothing can convey how bad it is, which is why some people say, well, there must not be a hell then, if it's that bad, because that's not a loving God. We're going to get to that. So here's another question for you. I guess this is the question. How can a loving God ever let anybody go to hell? If hell is that bad, if it's an eternal place of torment, how can he allow hell to happen to, every, to anyone? Is that fair? Is that fair? What are those three words again about the character of God? God is just. So the answer is yes. It is fair, whether you like it or not. And here's why it is. Here's the first reason in chapter 14, verse 6. The judgment, God says, isn't bad news, it's good news. The fact that hell exists and that evil gets punished isn't a sign that God is unjust. It's a sign that he's just, and that is important for us to know and to be certain of. That is a good thing. He is a just God. Here's the second reason. No one is going to hell unwillingly. Let's go back to Jezebel, the Jezebel referenced here. 
What does Jesus say? I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So let me say this. And Mike Newman says this in his book. says, people go to hell because finally God finally grants them what they've insisted their entire life on having. A life apart from God. Isn't that sad? But that's a reality. A life apart from God. In Revelation 15, it tells us that the people who are there that are described in Revelation 15 are seeing all that's going on. Uh, you know, the hell and the fire and brims, all kind of stuff. And yet they're still themselves, they're saying things like, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. They see this. They see the hell. They see the judgment. And yet they are acknowledging that God is just. God knows where sin can lead. He knows that. If it is not acknowledged, if it is not confessed, if your life of sin is arrogantly thrown into the face of God and grieves the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that and what the Bible means by that, where the Holy Spirit says, I've had enough of you. I'm out of here. You're in trouble. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be here right now. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't want anything to do with God. You don't want anything to do with Jesus. You don't care about the sin in your life. When I was going through this today, somebody, it might have been Stephen Headley who asked me, he says, you should tell that, that story about the, what happened at the seminary. My first year at the seminary, there were the two fourth-year students, and, and this is that this was so profound because it was so real. It happened to me where the one, they were talking about the grace of God in Jesus Christ and they were trying to figure out, well, how do we, how do we handle this when we get out in the parish? Because they were fourth year students, you know? What are we going to say when a situation comes up or somebody's, or somebody cheapens grace to the point where they think they can live however they want? And so the one guy says, okay, if I'm saved by the grace of God alone in Jesus Christ, then I'm just going to go out and commit adultery tonight. And then tomorrow morning, I'm going to repent of my sin. And the other student said, how do you know you will? Because being sorry for sin is a work of the Holy Spirit. You and I like sin. That's why we sin. God hates it. And we can't be in the presence of God if we're sinners. We have to be made righteous. Have to to ever be in his presence. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? I don't know. People ask me that. And I say, you know, I, I, I think it's, there comes a point in, in, in God anyway where he finally says, if you're going to keep committing that same sin over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and you're never sorry, I'm still going to forgive you, but there's going to come a point where you may walk away from the faith, where you may say, I've had enough. I don't need Jesus anymore. That's, that's the issue here. This is why he goes on to say here in verse 22, so here's what I'm going to do to the, to the people of this church. I'm going to cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those, uh, Jezebel, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. This is God's way of disciplining to break, to change, because he still loves her. 
She will suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will even strike her children dead. This is how serious God is. And then he goes on to say, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, who I have eyes that blaze. I know what's going on. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Does this sound like grace? Not at all, does it? To be repaid according to your deeds. What did I just say in the confession today? Psalm 130. Oh, you, oh Lord, if you kept the record of sin, oh Lord, who could stand? Dear God, please don't remember my sin. Please don't hold me accountable for all my sin. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, that's what he's addressing here. If you don't hold on to Jesus in your life, you are faced with this on your deathbed. Here are the scales. Do, I, do they weigh this way with good deeds or this way with bad deeds? You know what? Even that won't matter. Because in James it says, you break one of God's laws, you've broken them all. This is why Jesus says some of the things people call hyperbole, I don't think at all are. Where he says, if your eye is going to cause you to sin, you, you better just gouge it out. If your arm is going to cause you to sin, you better cut it off. Because living without an arm or an eye is better than getting thrown into hell where there are scorpions. <laughs> Anything would be better than that. For people without faith, you're left trusting in yourself. Are you really good enough on your own? God makes it clear to this church, no. He makes it clear to this church, no. He says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to Jezebel's teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, you know, how to rationalize, thinking that maybe doing it Satan's way is okay, I will not impose, listen to this, I will not impose any other burden on you except to be perfect. He doesn't say that. <laughs> I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And what do we have? We have Jesus. We have our faith in him. Don't lose it, no matter how bad it gets. That's what he's telling the people. No matter how bad it gets, I'm still there. I love you. I'm your only hope, he's saying. He's saying that to us too. He is the hope that we have. Hold on to him until he comes, whenever that is. He says, to the one who is victorious, who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. I will also give that one the morning star, whoever has ears, let him hear. And the morning star is discovered in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. It's Jesus. It's the morning star. In other words, Jesus says, I don't want to give you hell. I want to give you me. I want to give you Jesus. Hold on to Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at how good these people were, this, is, this has got to be the best church. And if, and if he's here judging the people of Thyatira, we don't stand a chance. Except for one thing. The one thing you will hear every sermon that's ever preached from this pulpit. And that one thing is that 2,000 years ago, 
2,000 years ago, Jesus fell on his knees. And he said to his father, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about the cup we just read about in chapter 14, the symbolic cup of Revelation 14, the cup of God's wrath over sin. Because Jesus knows it's about to be poured out on him. And he doesn't want to drink it. He knows how painful that's going to be to die on that cross. And he's saying, I don't want to do this, but you know what? If even one person is going to be saved from experiencing hell, I will. And when Jesus was crucified, you remember the words he spoke. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was hell. The complete absence of his father. The complete absence of the grace of God. Of his love. And he experienced that. So you and I wouldn't have to. We'd never have to experience that. He took on to himself the judgment of hell that we deserve. He suffered horribly. And he died. But he didn't stay dead. Because rising from that grave is what gives you and me and all who trust in him the most important victory in the world. And that is victory over death itself. That's the gift he gave us. That's what we call grace. You ever hear the acronym of grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. Look, look at, think about that every time you look at the cross. God's riches given us at Christ's expense. Grace. Now, with all that said, do things happen in this life that we don't understand, that we think are unjust? Yep, they sure do. Sometimes are we going to think, well, God, where were you? God, I, I think you messed up. <laughs> God, I don't think that was just. I don't think that was fair. Well, in light of the cross, and based on what God does reveal about himself in his word, to the people in Thyatira and to you and me, Jesus is saying, remember this. God is just in his judgment. Heaven or hell? Heaven or hell? And because of his sinless life, because of him paying the penalty of death for our sins, because of him rising from that grave to win victory over sin, death, and the devil, not for himself, but for you and for me, he's saying, I will stand in your stead on the day of judgment. And when you are brought before the throne of God, because you trust in me as your Savior, Jesus is saying, you will be declared not guilty. That's the message of Revelation. That's the message of the whole of the Bible. But especially in this book. And that is why these people then, and we today, to whom these letters from Jesus are written, is that we are called to remember, remember his promises, and remember that no matter what you're going through in this life, no matter how bad it gets, hold fast to Jesus as your Savior. Because when you do, you can know with certainty, in the end, what? 
everything is going to be okay. That's his promise. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray.